Do we need schooling alternatives? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Carrie McDonald. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Carrie McDonald. Carrie is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom and a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. Her research interests include homeschooling and alternatives to school, self-directed learning, education entrepreneurship and innovation, parent empowerment, school choice, and family and child policy. Carrie is also a regular Forbes contributor, and her articles have also appeared at the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, NPR, Education Next, Reason Magazine, City Journal, and Entrepreneur, just to name a few. She has a bachelor's degree in economics from Bowdoin College and a master's degree in education policy from Harvard University. She's the author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom, and the book will serve as the basis of much of our discussion today. Carrie, welcome to The Curious Task. Great to be with you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So in each episode, Carrie, we ask a question and go wherever the answers take us. Today, our question is, do we need schooling alternatives? And your book presents unschooling as an alternative, of course. I'd like to leave the unschooling part until the last bit of our conversation conversation. First, I'd like to spend a good chunk of time on why we have such a problem. So to get started, one thing you did in the book that I really liked is talked about the distinction between schooling and education. So why don't you do that for us? Let's kick it off with that. Right. So one of the things that I do in the unschooled book is really trace the history of compulsory education and compulsory schooling in the U.S. And if you think about, you know, where these statutes came from um, in the in the American colonies in beginning in the 1640s, Massachusetts Bay Colony passed um, the country's or the colony's first compulsory education law, which indicated a state interest in educated citizenry, but still really positioned parents as the ones ultimately responsible for making sure that their children were educated. There was also compulsion for cities and towns of a specific size that they would need to either hire a teacher or open and operate a grammar school. So the compulsion was on the cities and towns to provide education resources and opportunities for the parents that wanted them, but there was no compulsion, no requirement on the part of the families to take advantage of that that, uh, resource. That all changed uh, in the US and really around the world in the mid 19th century as this kind of very broad definition of education became narrowed into the four walls of a compulsory school classroom. And that was the passage of compulsory attendance laws uh, around the world in the 19th, mid to late 19th century, which for the first time really um, mandated school attendance under a legal threat of force. And now parents were required to send their children to school. Um, and, and that, I think, really is what ultimately narrowed, again, this larger sense of education as something that, you know, might encompass schooling. And there were a the whole host of different, different types of schooling prior to compulsory attendance laws. There were a panoply of private schools and public schools and charity schools and church schools. There was also apprenticeship programs, which were really sought after and valued um, for providing, you know, a stepping stone to adulthood for young adults and, and teenagers. Uh, And of course, homeschooling was really the default, uh, again, prior to the mid-19th century. And, you know, interestingly, Carl Castle is a well-known historian who wrote the book Pillars of the Republic. And he has this great quote that I love where he says, society educates in many ways. The state educates through schools. Mm. Uh, And I think we really see that happen in the 19th century. And then, of course, gaining power as compulsory schooling laws, you know, became more um, more rigid over, you know, 150 years. Um, you know, the first compulsory attendance law in Massachusetts in 1852, uh, only required students, um, eight to 14 to attend 12 weeks of schooling a year of which six of those weeks needed to be consecutive. Uh, It's almost laughable now when we think about the behemoth that, uh, schooling has become for childhood, really taking up Uh, So much of childhood and adolescence and compulsory schooling laws being pushed to ever younger ages, particularly with universal preschool, universal uh, kindergarten uh, expectations, and moving up now to even 18-year-olds in terms of compulsion and and attendance. So, um, you know, I think that 
what I'm hoping and what I try to do in the unschooled book is really um, help us to see that schooling is only one way of being educated. It's certainly the, the dominant way today, but it's not the only way. And I think we'll probably get into this some more, but I think particularly now with the COVID-19 pandemic, parents are getting a glimpse of other ways their children can be educated. And we're starting to disentangle education from schooling in real meaningful ways. It'll be interesting to see where that leads. Right. And would you say it's it's fair to say that as the idea of what schooling is, was, and should be narrows in people's heads, so too does, unfortunately, education come along with that, that what it means to be educated and, and what people think of as, quote unquote, getting an education starts narrowing and unfortunately gets locked right in, well, lockstep with what schooling is and the institutions we have today. Right. I mean, I think, you know, we often think about somebody as being well-educated, but often what that means is that they're well-schooled. And I mm -hmm. think many of us can probably, you know, reach adulthood and say, you know, gee, I, I'm well-schooled. I checked all the boxes and I went along the conveyor belt of compulsory mass schooling, but I'm not sure that I'm well-educated, right? I mean, you sort of come out the other end and now, you know, there's this expectation around personal agency and what are your gifts? What are your passions? What are your talents? How do you, um, you know, create a meaningful career. And I think that's when a lot of times, um, you know, we sort of look in the mirror and say, gee, you know, I need to rekindle that curiosity and that uh, agency for learning and that creativity that, you know, young children naturally exude, but that can often be crushed or diminished through um, this system of forced schooling. Right. It's, it's not it's not uncommon for people to sort of come out of the schooling system, especially in the West, and basically say, or at least feel, even if they don't say it consciously, that, okay, now I can do what I'm interested in, which is actually kind of sad if you think about it. It's true. And I, I do think that, um, you know, technology has been incredibly beneficial. Certainly, it's been um, a real lifesaver during this pandemic, enabling continued connection and continued ongoing learning. Um, but I think even before the pandemic, technology has really been a way for, again, adults um, to realize that they can learn new things or they can explore new skills and develop new talents. Um, you know, YouTube in particular is just a perfect resource for um refining or learning new new things you know it used to be that you went to school because that was where the books and the knowledge were right the mm -hmm. teachers were the ones who who had this key to information and and experience and knowledge and of course now that's all around us with the advent of technology so i think as we grown-ups realize um, the ways in which we learn in adulthood again by kind of reconnecting with our curiosity and our drives for learning and discovery you know, we want to then provide that same kind of opportunity for our children, realizing that in many ways, um, this sort of 19th century system of schooling that we have is inadequate to meet the realities of the 21st century. I mean, the World Economic Forum found that um, some of the most in-demand jobs and skill sets today didn't exist five or 10 years ago. Right. Uh, so the world is just constantly changing. And many of these, you know, really the most in-demand jobs and skill sets are things that you're, are not being taught in school. You know, they're constantly changing, very technolo technology-driven, um, digital-based. And so those are the kinds of skills that I think are really um we're going to see more of that. There's a, those are the things that are going to proliferate, and so what we want education to do is provide kind of this um, way of encouraging creativity and curiosity and discovery, and 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 help people to um, tap into those natural drives for learning um, rather than having that diminished. You, you and I, of course, as we go on here in our conversation, are, are going to talk about some of the problems with modern schooling. And then, of course, we will talk about w one of the alternatives, if not one, one of perhaps the best ones towards the end of our conversation. But but right off the bat, it seems to me that when you do talk about the problems with, with modern schooling to people, oftentimes there's sort of a knee jerk reaction, right? People might flippantly say, OK, well, well, well so what are what are the alternatives then? And again, I, as I said, we'll talk about alternatives at the end of our conversation. But the fact is, it's interesting that people have that that reaction. And you, and you talk a bit about this in your book, actually, you talk about how the idea of what schooling is and, and what it should be is so like ingrained in our culture. And, and I never thought of it like that until I actually read that in your book. But you said it, quote unquote, schooling is everywhere in our culture, right? Like you you, you had this line yeah. I liked, you said it's it's in our prom pictures, it's in our old photos, it's, it's, it's just... 
it's hard for people to even start thinking of a world where that arrangement would be different. And I found that very interesting that you brought that up. Right. I mean, it's in our fiction, right? It's in our it's in our theater. It's, it is everywhere. It is pervasive. And I think it's really remarkable, given that, you know, certainly compulsory mass schooling is it's a relatively recent social phenomenon. Um, so, right, I think it's starting to think about separating education from schooling. And I think the pandemic, as I mentioned earlier, is really um, a catalyst for that as, you know, families realize, gee, there's this whole other way of being educated, whether it's virtual schooling or um, these tremendous online learning resources that are available that have certainly um, become even more abundant during the course of the pandemic. Um, or, you know, homeschooling, of course, on the rise. Um, and these other schooling alternatives, self-directed learning centers and hybrid homeschool models and co-ops um, that I think are really going to disrupt education. They already have started to do that. And I think we'll just see that uh, amplified over the coming months and years. So I have, I have a quote here from your book, and then I'm going to drill into a couple of questions. So, so here's the quote. It says, Instead of robots, we need inventive thinkers, curious seekers, and passionate doers. Inventiveness, curiosity, and passion are all characteristics that young children naturally exude. We don't need to train them for the jobs of the future. We just need to stop training these inborn characteristics out of them. So that's the end of the quote. And someone hearing that quote might say, well, hold on. What's so bad about modern schools and, and teaching methods? Like th th some people might think, oh, these, this is extreme language. We're training and characteristics out of these kids. Schooling sounds terrible when you put it like that. Well, that's why I want to get a bit more into that today. So let's talk about what's wrong with the modern approach to schooling in your view. So I have a couple of specific notes on that instead of just throwing it your way and saying, tell us what's wrong. But one point in your book, of course, talks about, firstly, the idea of a teacher and institution directing learning instead of students themselves and the children directing their own self-learning, if you will. So, so why don't you spend a couple minutes on that? Because I think that as a fundamental concept is, is very important to understanding why uh, many, including yourself, view the modern approach to schooling as, as flawed right from the get-go. Right. So the um, person who writes the foreword to my unschooled book is Peter Gray, who's a psychology professor at Boston College who wrote the book Free to Learn. And he's a real advocate for unschooling and self-directed education. And what he says is, you know, children um, come into the world with these natural drives for learning. And they don't magically disappear when a child turns five or six years old and heads off to school. Right. We destroy them with a coercive system of schooling. And this is this idea of, you know, forcing children to focus on compliance and obedience, um, follow a rigid curriculum that's becoming increasingly standardized and test-based. Uh, and that really snuffs out a lot of those drives for discovery. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I, of course, in, in more of the homeschooling space and the alternatives to school space, and I've been receiving numerous messages and emails from parents uh, over the past several months saying it's just amazing uh, how my child now disconnected from school is, you know, rekindling their love of reading or they're getting really focused on this one particular passion of theirs. And it's just exciting to see. Um, or, you know, they're just writing short stories and it, it's, that's been really fulfilling. And I think that, that that is true, that, you know, when we give people freedom, when we give, we allow for autonomy, um, it's incredible to see the kind of output and productivity that comes from that. And of course, adults, you know, play a, a really important role in that, but it, the role, it should be more of a facilitator and a resource connector um, than someone who's directing a child's education. And then I'll just sort of step back and say, you know, Certainly, I think this idea of self-directed, non-coercive education is, is um, preferable. But, you know, my main goal in a lot of the work that I do at Cato and Fee is really focus on expanding education choices for families. So, you know, what we have, again, is this compulsory system of mass schooling where in the U.S., um, more than 80%, almost 90% of young people are in an assigned district school and and that really limits choices for parents. In fact, EdChoice came out with a survey of parents last fall, finding that while, again, the vast majority of young people are attending a local assigned district school, 
fewer than 30% of their parents would prefer them to be there. So this is enormous choice gap between uh, where children are currently being educated and where their parents would prefer them to be educated. And that's where I think we need to be um, much more focused on how do we expand education choices? How do we encourage education entrepreneurship? How do we um, just open up the options and reduce a lot of the, the kind of force and compulsion associated with schooling um, that enables more of these education options to flourish. So when we get back to the idea of contrasting, uh, again, the idea of a, a teacher directing someone's growth and, and learning as opposed to self-directed learning, I think you touched on the example of reading and writing. So perhaps that's a good one. And of course, don't let me put words in your mouth. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of like, I guess, the difference in a way between me as a quote unquote teacher and this made up example I'm doing saying here, read this book and write 500 words on it or whatever the case may be versus just leaving the child or or the student, whatever age they are with the freedom to read if they want to. And then perhaps they'll read more or choose what they want to read. I guess that's ultimately an example of, of the difference between that teacher directed or self directed, I would say. Right. And I think it's not, it's certainly not about um, leaving the kids completely to their own devices. I mean, reading is a great example where it's, you know, the adults, the adult requirement would be to provide a literacy rich learning environment where, you know, children are constantly being read to, they're being taken to the library, there's lots of books surrounding them that they have access to, um, they see other people reading. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not read this passage that has absolutely no meaning for this child. Um, it's really looking at what they're interested in. Maybe your kid is really interested in butterflies. And so you find reading materials that focus on that. I think it's also um, a willingness to be more flexible around when children learn to read, how they learn to read. I mean, here in the U.S., particularly with the advent of Common Core and the state standards um, over the past decade or more, uh, you really find that these expectations for children learning to read have been shifted down to much younger ages, mm -hmm. specifically now requiring kindergartners to be able to read, which is really a shift from, you know, certainly when I was a kid and even, I think, uh, just at the turn of the millennium. Um, and so what happens then is if you have a five-year-old or a kindergartner who is not reading because they may just not be developmentally ready to read, they're instead uh, slapped with a label as reading delayed or reading deficient. Maybe they're given um, a label of dyslexia and these sorts of things when it could be, again, that they're just not developmentally ready to read. And one of the things that I, one of the, the pieces of research I cite in my unschooled book um, was a group of researchers looked at what was the sort of average age of reading proficiency in young people who learned outside of conventional schooling, um, in particular homeschoolers. And it was about eight and a half was the average age of reading proficiency. Um, so if we think about sort of a bell curve of reading proficiency, you know, you'll certainly have early readers, those who start reading at four or five. And then, you know, you might have later readers who don't learn until even nine or 10. And it sort of falls in the middle where most children would be reading proficiently around eight and a half. And of course, now where you have these standards and test expectations, pushing that to five-year-olds, which is really on the early end of reading, um, capacity, you know, I think that is where, um, you know, we run into a lot of trouble and something that I think more and more parents are pushing back against. I find it something as well that we wouldn't accept with adults, for instance, because like most people think of adulthood as a place where you can self, hopefully they do at least, where you can self-direct and fulfill and pursue things that you're most interested in, et cetera. If I choose, for instance, not to become a better cook, like we don't call me cooking deficient, for instance. So mm -hmm. it becomes this weird situation where I find that, as you were saying, this sort of in the book as well, that the sort of top down sort of setting of expectations and control on what the students are going to do and what they're going to learn and at what pace too. that's what I find kind of a, a disturbing outlook too. when you think of this pacing discussion of if someone crosses a certain point, maybe it's an age, let's say, and they don't have X, Y and Z exactly right. As you said, we get these labels as deficient or or they're behind or they're streamed through a different part of the curriculum. So that, that seems to definitely be a problem to me just in terms of someone developing on their natural course. Right. And I think that that's really been what's leading a lot of um, parents, particularly in the last decade, to shift toward homeschooling. I mean, the New York Times reported um, a couple of years ago about how one of the key reasons why there was an increase in homeschoolers in the U.S. was parents, particularly urban secular parents, 
who were disillusioned by Common Core standards and by this increased focus on uh, testing and developmentally inappropriate learning expectations, particularly for young children. Uh, and so parents are saying, no, you know, we're going to do something different. This isn't uh, what I want for my child's education. And I actually think that ties in nicely to the next thing I want to quickly talk about. And of course, your book talks about it, uh, which is you say that ultimately in this schooling versus education discussion, when we just see uh, children and students going through the process of, quote unquote, being schooled, ultimately, they also learn how to, quote unquote, play school. The, the mm. idea sort of becomes, are they actually learning something or are they be just becoming better at playing the educational process and hitting expectations that are set for them, getting an A here, a B there, that sort of thing. So I found that very interesting in your book as well. Yeah, I, I think that is interesting. There's actually a book called Playing School that I reference in my in my book. Um, but right, it's this idea that kids learn very early on how to play the game of school and to realize that it's really not about learning. It is about figuring out how to navigate this system of obedience and control and conformity and doing what the teacher wants and regurgitating information to the satisfaction of the teacher or the test and behaving uh, in a way that the school, you know, thinks is appropriate. Um, and, and that if you're not good at playing the game of school, there are consequences to that. And I think um, it's particularly unfortunate when I you know, hear stories and, and certainly um, can imagine kids whose interests and passions are just not valued within the school environment. Um, so they may be, they might have a really um, unique interest that's just not nurtured during their time um, in childhood. And if they're lucky, they can reconnect with that passion perhaps as an adult. But for many of them, they sort of internalize this idea that what, what I'm interested in doesn't matter. And maybe I'm not good at the things that supposedly do matter. And so therefore I must, there's something must be wrong with me. I must, you know, not be um, worthy. And I think that that's the biggest tragedy of, again, sort of one size fits all system of coercive schooling. And and I think actually this ties also nicely again into another idea I want to talk about and we'll talk about alternatives to it later. But when people think, oh, well, if children don't go to school, if they don't go to like the institutions we're used to, um, you know, who, who's going to teach them like a curriculum? Like what will they follow? And again, like I said, we'll talk about alternatives to that later. But can you get into the idea of, of why a curriculum, although as you say in your book, can be uh, a good resource at times isn't the best idea for something that that should guide or control a learning experience. Well, one of the definitions of unschooling that I use in my book comes from Professor Carl Wheatley at Cleveland State University, who studies unschooling families and, and self-directed education. And he defines unschooling families as those who use little or no formal adult chosen curriculum and really allow the child's interests to drive the learning. And I like that definition because I think it um, it speaks to the fact that when I talk about unschooling or self-directed education, it's not anti-curriculum or, um, or even anti-formal sort of instruction. It's really acknowledging that curriculum can be an impediment to uh, encouraging a child's natural development. Um, and I frequently use the example of my daughter, I have four children who've never been schooled, who I weave throughout the unschooled book. Um, and my older daughter, who's 13, is very interested in Korean language and culture. And she first became interested in this by taking martial arts classes that, that she drove. I mean, there was a new martial arts studio that opened near our home, and she was curious about it and asked if she could go in and talked to the people there and, and ultimately took some trial classes and really fell in love with martial arts and was on her way to being a black belt um, within the next year. And from that martial arts training, she became interested in Korean language and culture and so started to want to take classes in Korean language and culture. So we found some online classes through Duolingo, which is a free online language learning um, website software. But she wanted something even more than that. And then I was able to find a native Korean language speaker uh, in our city. And she's been meeting with her at the library uh, for the past couple of years now uh, and is well on her way to her goal of being fluent in Korean. And she uses a very formal 
Korean language curriculum with quizzes and tests and homework and assignments. Um, but the point is that it's, it's her driving that process. Right. And it's tied to, to these interests. Um, and I think that that is the message that I like to send around uh, thinking about education as separate from schooling and separate from what we would consider kind of curriculum-based learning is that it's not, um, it's not against curriculum. It's just thinking about curriculum in a different way where the curriculum is, is supplementing um, and is a resource for wider learning, but that it's not directing that. That learning. So although um, a sort of more uh, traditional or more rigid learning style is something that is helping your daughter learn Korean and, and she is going through that process, she directed herself to that process and thought it would be the best for her. You or a teacher didn't come in and say, well, that's enough Korean language time. Let's go do geography now sort of thing. <laughs> that's right. And I, I like that example, too. And we probably get into this a little bit more, but um, particularly when, you know, homeschooling families are ask, well, how do you think you could ever teach your child calculus? Or how could you ever teach them, um, you know, advanced chemistry and those kinds of things? And, and I, I like the Korean example, because I don't know Korean. Uh, my husband doesn't know Korean. We don't know anybody, you know, in, in our immediate circle who knows Korean. Right. But there are just so many resources now available, both online and, you know, real resources within our communities that, um, enable this kind of learning to occur uh, so that it's really the adults that are facilitating that process that are connecting a child's interests to available resources. Uh, but are not, you know, the ones driving that learning. I'd like to pivot to something a little different too. And this is a quote you do at the beginning of the book. It's something actually from Noam Chomsky, where he talks about that the modern schooling system is essentially a system, quote, a system of indoctrination of the young. Um, and of course, as many things that Noam Chomsky sometimes says, if you take his uh, sentences out of context, you're like, well, that's extreme. But often with him as well, when you find what he's talking about, and I found many areas where he has talked about this in context, that really what he's talking about, at least the way I understand it, basically is that if if everyone's going through the same funnel, the same rigid process and having the same values and ideas imprinted on them in a controlled way, as we were discussing before, what are we really talking about at that point? You know, it becomes a little like the, what his sentence that to some people may think is a little extreme on the face of it starts to get a lot more merit the more you think it through, I find. Right. Well, and I think it also um, involves a closer look again at the history of compulsory mass schooling. So I'll go back to 19th century America. Um, particularly in Massachusetts in 1852, when the first compulsory, the nation's first compulsory attendance law was passed. This again was, um, began sprouting. Compulsory attendance laws began sprouting around the world in the mid to late 19th century. But but certainly um, in the U.S., much of the catalyst for compulsory attendance laws focused on this idea of needing to assimilate. Um, Irish Catholic immigrants mm -hmm. who were streaming into Massachusetts at the time. So the population of Boston doubled between 1820 and 1840, um, mostly with Irish Catholic immigrants fleeing the Irish potato famine. And this was a culture that was dominated by Anglo-Saxon Protestant thinking. And so there was a real sense of, of threat with these, you know, Irish Catholic immigrants coming in. And so there was this idea that you have to force um, these immigrants into an American system of compulsory schooling so that they will be, you know, sort of forcibly assimilated. Right. And that's ultimately what happened. And of course, you know, these common schools that emerge in the mid-19th century are purportedly secular, but they had the King James version of the Bible. They had Protestant teachers. Everything about them was really reflective of the dominant culture. And many Catholic families rebelled and said, there's no way we're sending our kids to these schools. They created their own parallel system of Catholic parochial schools, which the various states tried to crack down on throughout the 19th century. Um, ultimately, that came to a peak in the U.S. in 1925, when um, Oregon in 1922 passed a law banning private schools, which at the time were only Catholic schools. Um, and fortunately, the Supreme Court in a landmark decision over, overturned that, ruled that unconstitutional, saying that the child is not the mere creature of the state. And, and, and it's funny that as you were explaining that too, it struck me that everyone will note as you were explaining some of that history that the first priority of these folks trying to create public schooling was not, well, all these Irish people coming in, they need to do really great math. 
that's what we need them to do, right? That wasn't the first priority. As you said, it was more about cultural values and assimilation. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the Massachusetts state legislature, um, just before passing the first compulsory schooling law, um, said, quote, those pouring in upon us in masses of thousands upon thousands are wholly of another kind in morals and intellect. I mean, there was just tremendous anti-immigrant sentiment. And so there was this sense that, no, we need to create these coercive um, government institutions that will, again, Americanize these, these immigrants. And it is also important to note that one of the key architects for, um, again, Massachusetts compulsory schooling law, which was the first in the country, um, was Horace Mann, who was the first secretary of the Massachusetts Board of Education. Um, and he homeschooled his own children with, you know, no intention of sending his children to the common schools mandated of others. And I think we continue to see much of that hypocrisy today um, with particularly politicians who might be opposed to school choice mechanisms and options, but exercise school choice for their own children. Maybe they choose private schools for their own children or are, have the ability to move to areas with better public schools, but then deny those choices to other families. And actually, that takes us right to the time where we have to take a break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Carrie McDonald today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustaskatliberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Ben Hobbs, Lawrence Kong, and Janet Bufton. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Carrie McDonald today. Uh, Carrie, before the break, we were talking about uh, the different problems with, with the schooling system from both an educational philosophy perspective and a practical application perspective. One, one thing I want to comment on before, want your comment on before we moved away from it, rather, was, and your book touches on this too, this discussion of what people call this sort of in increasing set of mental health problems among children. Of course, like pills and therapy are, are thrown at these problems. And, and of course, in some cases, these things are needed. But in general, it, it seems that a lot of the cases, if not at least many, that the the source of the problem may not be being treated. We're, we're, we're taking the idea of schooling for granted. So if someone can't sit at a desk and learn the way, you know, Bob, Sally and, and John are learning as well, that they might have ADHD or some sort of developmental problem. But but really, it might be the school environment. You kind of touch on this in your book that that might be the problem for a lot of children and their mental health rather than just the child itself being either deficient or having some sort of acronym that we need to attach to their condition. This is such an important point. I'm glad you brought this up because um, I'll, I'll talk about two really uh, essential studies in this area. The first was Harvard researchers in 2018 published findings that, again, the U.S., in states that had a September 1st kindergarten cutoff for kindergarten enrollment, children who were born in August and had just turned five years old were 30% more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than children who were born in September who were about to turn six, so hmm. almost a year older. And right. any of us you know, who are parents can appreciate the difference a year makes, particularly for young children. I mean, there's an enormous difference in a, a newly minted five-year-old and a child who's about to turn six. And so uh, you know, this was just this, these extraordinary findings of 30% you know, more um, diagnosis, which really just points to the fact that kids, again, are just developmentally not ready to sit still and listen and pay attention um, at many kids as, they, as a young five-year-old. And they are more able to do that often as a child who's about to turn six. But as we're pushing these academic expectations down to kindergartners, again, expecting kindergartners now to read um, and to sit still and really pay attention, we can see these problems. And I think it's absolutely true that we end up then saying something is wrong with the child instead of looking at the environment of the child and something that we're doing uh, as adults to the child. The child is just growing and learning on his or her own developmental timetable. And we are sort of imposing this structure. 
So that's certainly something with young children that we're seeing. Um, you're absolutely right, too, that the rates of adolescent depression, anxiety, and suicide are dramatically increasing, particularly here in the U.S. And there was an interesting study from Vanderbilt University professors that found that there's a significant seasonal correlation between uh, youth suicide and suicidal attempts um, and the time of the year. So what they found was that um, young people, adolescents, their um, suicide ideation and attempts increased during the academic year. So spike sort of back to school time and, and stay high during the academic year and then plummet in the summer months. And what makes this really startling is that this is a pattern that's the opposite of adults. So adults experience the most suicide ideation and attempts in the summer. Uh, and so that was what was really striking. Um, and you think about, you know, what's happening for your children. They're, for teenagers, they're not in, forced into these uh, schools, really, where they're, where they're um, potentially being bullied or otherwise unhappy. I mean, Yale researchers, just to give you another point uh, that was actually, this is new research from a a April of this year, so it's not in my book, but Yale researchers found that 75% of high school students are unhappy in school. I mean, it was just this overwhelming dissatisfaction with school. Mm -hmm. And the researchers said, you know, we knew that kids don't really like school. We expected that there would be some level of dissatisfaction, but they were shocked to see just the extent to which uh, adolescents really were not happy in school. And, and so, of course, you know, that could be leading also to these um, anxiety, depression, and suicide increases. Um, also, you know, kids are spending a lot more time in school than ever before. They're, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, young people are working a lot less as teenagers, including after-school jobs and spending more time in school, including summer and after-school programs. So it's a much more um, central part of a child and adolescent life than it ever was before. Uh, and I think that could also be leading to a lot of this dissatisfaction. Right. And, and as we were saying before, like any, any, well, any behavior really that's exhibited by a child or a student that's outside of the range that the teacher, the school wants to accept it is, is not only just looked at as a certain behavior or something that may just be a component of them and their, and their personal makeup, but is looked at as like a behavioral problem. Like if someone's sitting at a desk for three hours straight and then they say, well, I want to go outside, but that's not what they're supposed to do at that point in time, then there's somebody that can't sit still. <laughs> like that's what they're looked at as opposed to uh, someone that just wants maybe that's what they want to do in that moment. So I, fi I find that very interesting. So this must put like definitely, especially at a younger age and, and you know, adolescence as well, uh, put like a certain form of mental pressure on, on these kids. And it, as you said, it's interesting that we also talk about how much more time they're spending with this pressure. So I think it's kind of like a powder keg of mental health in a way. Right. I think that's right. Because, you know, again, research shows that kids are spending more time in school than they have been before, certainly since I was a kid. Um, but they're also, even if they are, you know, even if the school day isn't substantially longer, the school year isn't substantially longer, um, after school programs are just as structured and adult driven as the school day. So it used to be, you know, maybe if you were a teenager, you might have still had to go to school for six hours but your afternoons were wide open and free, right. or you were able to go to an after-school job that that kind of tapped into other parts of your um, creativity or interests, um, or just gave you a change of pace. Um, and now that's not the case. You know, now kids are going right from one structured adult-led activity to another, and so there really isn't a sense of kind of personal autonomy. And we know that, of course, it's that lack of personal autonomy, that lack of agency, that can really lead to um, depression and anxiety and some of these other uh, maladies. Yeah, that's something I actually really liked in your book too, in the chapter where you talk about how basically childhood isn't essentially what it, what it used to be. And yeah, just this idea of, of schooling and structure and just the philosophy behind 
schooling and structure as you said it's like permeating even outside of if you will the four walls or however many walls someone's school has like you I, one thing i thought that was kind of cool you talked about sort of this this prepackaged experience that many people live through from ages zero to 18 for instance is is kind of almost like you related it to like you know prepackaged food it might taste good in the moment or maybe even moderately okay but it's not that great for you and and as you were sort of saying this idea that you go to school that's a set of rules and things. Okay, then maybe the summer hits. You're you're in a summer camp from nine to five, and then it's a certain. Then it's dinner time. Then it's this and that. All these adult led, adult directed activities. These these school stuffs, as you sort of term them in the book. Mm-hmm. At some point, too much of that might not be the best, if any, at all for for someone. So I found that very interesting. That this idea of schooling is permeating again, as I was saying, outside of just the the quote unquote educational system. It's how ch- children are living their lives. Exactly. So it isn't it. it- Schooling is also being shifted to earlier and earlier ages with academic pressures mounting, particularly at the young ages. Um, And there's more of it. You know, you sort of have all day kindergarten now, which is a new phenomenon over the past couple of decades, even the past decade. Um, So kids are spending a lot more time in school. But then you're absolutely right. It's these other activities uh, that are, like you said, permeating other parts of the child's life. So there's no break. There's no real um, chance for kind of personal reflection or play um, that's crucial, certainly, for young children's development. Um, and I think equally crucial for adolescents, just this opportunity to kind of reflect and step back and figure out what kind of person they are instead of just being, you know, constantly um, maneuvered by others. And with that, I'd actually like to pivot into one of the alternatives that I've, I've been teasing this whole time so we can jump right into it now. So as you were mentioning before, there's there's many different types of alternatives uh, philosophically and institutionally to what we now know as like the modern schooling. If the listener wants to think of public schooling in their head. That's what we'll be contrasting this stuff against. Um, but but one of those alternatives is, of course, the, the unschooling approach. Um, and this is what your book's based on and it explores. And we definitely encourage everyone to check that out. But before we jump right into a couple more questions I have, why don't you give us like a, a definition of unschooling and maybe like a brief overview of what it is, then we can drill a little deeper. Right. So it, um, unschooling is essentially what I've been saying. It's this idea of disentangling education from schooling and allowing a child's interest to really drive that learning. So it's really focused on self-directed education as opposed to this kind of top-down coercive model. And if we, if we think about unschooling as separate even from traditional forms of homeschooling, um, particularly what many families, most families who found themselves thrust into pandemic-related homeschooling this spring, that kind of homeschooling is really replicating school at home. It's um, In the case of this spring, it's often tied to a district. Uh, it's um, really just taking what a child would be doing in school and importing that to the home. So the only thing that's changed is the location. It's right. still schooling. Um, or even if the schooling isn't tied to a, a local district school, um, it could be you know some curriculum pack- package that a family purchases or uses that directs that learning. So essentially, again, it looks like school at home. And what unschooling, the unschooling philosophy would say is, let's try to move away from that. Let's not feel so tied to this idea that we have to be schooling our children. Um, We want to educate our children and we want to think about education as much broader and bigger than just schooling. Um, So in my unschooled book, I really trace the individuals, families, organizations, and alumni who have learned through self-directed education or unschooling or who are creating the conditions for other people to learn through these ways. And I think, you know, when we talk about schooling alternatives, particularly as families now are thinking about what uh, back to school might look like, Certainly, uh, home-based learning is, of course, popular now as we're spending more of our time at home and many parents are working from home. And so that, that's a, an appropriate, uh, understandable you know, pathway that's gaining increasing popularity. But there are also these other models such as hybrid homeschool models or self-directed learning centers that I write a lot about in the book. Um, and these are really exciting because they're low-cost private options that are focused on homeschooling as the sort of legal mechanism. So families are able to take back control of their child's education with the freedom and flexibility of homeschooling, becoming a registered homeschooler. But then they can enroll their child in one of these low-cost learning center programs, part-time or full-time. So, you know, mm-hmm. a child could be going a couple of days a week and taking classes and learning through other, from other facilitators, or they could be there five days a week, particularly if their parents work or 
Um, there are, you know, other reasons to have a child there full time. So um, this is really exciting. The, the centers that I spotlight in my book are typically a, um, a third to a quarter of the cost of other available private options, again, operating under the homeschool mechanism, the homeschool regulations. Um, so it really opens up a whole host of possibilities for more families. One of the things I thought was really cool in the book was I noticed that you were very careful uh, n- never to write a sentence that went something like, when I taught my daughter to read, there's always the sentence always structured in such a way that says, I remember the day when so-and-so taught themselves to or or learned how to themselves. Like this idea that they, they were self-directing their learning and also they were the ones learning something, not the ones being, being taught something. Of course, if they, if they seek that out, that would have been acceptable. But but in general, you, you made it clear that they were directing their own learning. And I thought that was very interesting. I'm wondering if, especially for those who may think of this sort of chaotic environment where no one's learning anything when they think of unschooling, if you could sort of paint like a day in the life, like what did an unschooling day look like in Carrie McDonald's life when she was experiencing that with her children? Yeah, I mean, I'll say what I say in the book, and I, I say it all the time is that I think um, parents are ultimately the ones responsible for making sure that their children are highly literate and numerate, highly educated. And I say that uh, whether or not, whether your child is uh, homeschooled, unschooled, or goes to a conventional school, I still think it's the parent's responsibility for making sure that that's the best educational fit for their child mm-hmm. and that their child is actually learning. So, you know, this is very much the case with unschooling too. This is not um, a free-for-all. This is not children kind of running around doing what they want. This is very much, you know, the parents are responsible for their children being highly educated, but it's just a different way of approaching that and really thinking about, um, you know, uh, having this be a real child-centered uh, approach to learning that's developmentally appropriate for that child. And, and you know, you bring up the example of my daughter learning to read. Um, when I first committed to homeschooling, and I became interested in homeschooling, you know, 20 years ago when I was an undergraduate um, in economics, but started becoming interested more in, in economics, looking at education issues, and had a chance at that time to get into homeschooling. And this was sort of homeschooling had just become legally recognized in all 50 states in the U.S. just a few years prior by the mid-1990s. It was the late 90s when I was doing my initial research. So it's not the kind of mainstream education option that it's certainly become. But it always was in the back of my head that this was something that, that, that I thought was intriguing. And I loved this idea of kind of separating education from schooling. And so then when it came time to think about education options for our own children, homeschooling was, you know, certainly top of the list. Um, and we're in Boston, Massachusetts, where there's just this vibrant homeschooling community and lots of classes and resources and programming for homeschoolers. So it was a, a good fit for us. But I remember, um, you know, kind of in the early stages when I was thinking about um, what my child, what my older child's education would look like. I, as she hit kind of kindergarten age, school age, I said, okay, all this play, all this, um, freedom that, that she had when she was young, that was all great in early childhood. But now that she's hitting school age, we have to get serious about learning. Right. So I started, uh, really researching different curriculum and figuring out, you know, what would be still, you know, very playful and, and, and child-centered, but, you know, would have clear expectations and timelines for reading, writing, and arithmetic. And as I was kind of narrowing down these curriculum choices, she taught herself how to read. (laughs) Of course, you know, there was a lot of literacy happening uh, in our, in our home environment and, and what she was exposed to. But I realized at that moment, I said, gee, I'm about to spend all this money on a curriculum to teach my child something that she's already now doing. Right. And it really made me pause and step back and see all the other amazing things that she was learning and realize that she didn't have that we didn't have to follow this kind of schooled paradigm that we could uh, have a much more kind of emergent uh, learning experience that was tied to her interests and, and tied to you know her talents. Um, so that was really freeing. And I think, um, and, and then, you know, what sort of I dug into unschooling and the kind of history of self-directed education, I realized this is not kind of some new age idea, but that these ideas around um, not only self-directed education, but just the idea of kind of self-determination and personal autonomy and freedom from coercion, you know, go back centuries. I'm reminded, especially as I was reading your book, I was reminded of uh, just a week ago, or actually it was a couple of days ago, I think there was a there was a radio show. It was a call-in show here. It's called Ontario Today. It's actually really good. Um, and nevertheless, uh, one of the things that the host was talking about was asking people to call in with their experience with uh, the fact that over the past couple of weeks and maybe months, they've had to uh, educate their children at home. And 
and, and there was one, um, I forget if it was a mom or a dad, but nevertheless, one person had called in and said, we, we tried importing the curriculum at home. It was just too stressful. No, They didn't like it at school. <laughs> they didn't like it here, yeah. the kids, that is. They, they tried sitting at the table, doing the slots that were recommended for X, Y, and Z time on a certain, you know, a subject, moving from math to geography. And they said after a couple of days of that, everyone was miserable. And then she, her story actually ended as she was telling the host that she finally just decided, like, enough's enough. And she just asked, apparently, her child one day, like, what, like, what do you want to do today? And she said that was, like, probably the most educational day that they've ever had mm-hmm. together uh, you know they went to museums they did different things it was truly a day where their child directed the process and I think that's that's when I heard that on the radio and also was reading your book around the same time I thought well this this is amazing it's pretty much exactly what you're talking about is that not trying to impose this sort of structure at home and as you said you are in charge to faci- and responsible for, I should say, to facilitate your child's learning and make sure they're educated. But it isn't this idea of sit here, shut up and do this math question, right? Right. And I think it's really the idea of being immersed in the people, places and things of your community. Of course, we're all disconnected now from our community to some degree or another with the pandemic. But um, it, with typical homeschooling or unschooling, you know, that's kind of the centerpiece is that you are learning uh, from your community, from the the programming, the library and the museums and the cultural events um, around you. And in fact, it was a really interesting study done by Daniel Hamlin out of the University of Oklahoma recently, where he found that homeschoolers had high degrees of what he calls cultural capital. So they were two to three times more likely to attend uh, or to go to a library, a museum or a cultural event throughout the course of a month and one and a half times more likely to go to a zoo or an aquarium uh, over the course of a month than conventionally school children, public school children. Um, so, you know, there is this, this real sense that homeschoolers are truly uh, connected to their wider community. And that's how um, you're learning. That's what's exciting about about learning outside of schooling. You talked about like going around in the community and the children being exposed to that. And, and that was really striking as well when you noted that in the book is that is part of education and growing, right? Is that, you know, spending a, a, a day, for instance, with mom or dad, if they need to quickly run to the post office, interact with people in the community, as you said, go to the library, go to the store, do whatever the, the do whatever needs to be done in that given day. That's also an educational experience and we shouldn't be discounting that. You can either do that for a day or be locked in a classroom at a little desk doing x y and z all day it's just interesting to me that that you pointed out all that to say that life itself is also an educational experience that just living in your community is as well right and then again you add um, all of those real resources of, of our community where you know libraries and museums and cultural spaces and organizations nature centers and so on can open up whole windows of uh, interest and excitement for kids but you also have, again, tremendous digital resources that we've seen proliferate, uh, certainly over the last several months, where there's just so much that you can access as families, many of which are free uh, online. Um, I mentioned Duolingo, the online language learning software. I have a, an article up at Cato that talks about other free online learning resources. Khan Academy is probably the global leader in free online learning videos high-quality videos for, for kids that are used in many schools um, as well as for people outside of schools. So there's just a real abundance of both real and digital resources now to facilitate learning. And, and the last point I'd like to, to cover before before we end off the form, the, the main part of our discussion here and enter the wrap-up as our time is, is winding down um, is just to talk about the pandemic, right? We're dealing with COVID-19 now, and obviously this has shaken, as I was alluding to before, this has shaken a lot of people's lives right up. Um, in some cases, it's unbearable for some people, but in other cases, it seems to have caused many people to not only rethink what school is doing all day with their children, but also, in fact, what it what it's good for. What could the alternatives be? So, And as you've mentioned, there's lots of resources online alternative ways of learning subjects, things that you may want to guide and, and facilitate with your children or, or just simply they may discover it themselves. But but nevertheless, point being that this, this pandemic probably has shaken a lot of things up and has people really thinking about education, I think. Right. I mean, I think this is really a, a transformational moment in education. I mean, at the peak of the pandemic, we had over one billion students around the world displaced from their classrooms and learning at home. Here in the U.S., we had 55 million students outside of their schools learning at home with varying degrees of connection to their school and to their curriculum. And I think it really uh, opened up a lot of 
parents' eyes to not only what was happening or not happening within the schooling environment that their children were in, but also what else is possible. Um, certainly our comfort level with virtual learning, I think, has increased. We see that there are you know, so many more options for facilitating education outside of a standard classroom um, than really has ever existed before. Um, maybe as adults, we may have more flexibility now with our own work schedules to be able to think a little bit differently about what, um, what those school week and the work week could be like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we, it's interesting. Those of us who are typical homeschoolers, people who were homeschooling even before the pandemic would say that this was nothing like, um, normal homeschooling, right? That, you know, again, homeschoolers are, typically immersed in our communities and taking classes and, and interacting meaningfully with real people uh, around us. And of course, that's not happening for any of us now. Um, but it's interesting that even given that that artificial kind of homeschooling that we've all had a taste of this spring, data show that parents are really interested in homeschooling or virtual learning or schooling alternatives. Um, a recent USA Today poll found that 60% of parents would continue at-home learning even if their schools open this fall. Um, They said they were likely 30% of those parents, so they were very likely uh, to continue at-home learning. I think some of this is tied to kind of lingering fears about the virus itself, even though fortunately most children seem to be spared from COVID's most dire effects. But a lot of it is um, reaction to the uh, social distancing measures that schools are implementing um, for back to schools, such as all day mask wearing and separated desks and cafeterias and gyms that are closed down, um, you know, playground restrictions and toy sharing restrictions and so on. And parents are saying, well, that's not, you know, a great learning environment. We'll just continue doing what we're doing. It's not all that bad. Uh, so I think, you know, certainly in the short term, we'll see, um, parents continue to choose homeschooling. I just wrote an article yesterday for feed.org that uh, showed just the rising increase, the rising popularity of homeschooling uh, throughout the U.S. And in fact, so many parents um, in North Carolina last week submitted online notices to homeschool that it crashed the uh, state's non-public education website. (laughs) So just tremendous uh, interest, certainly in the short term, for uh, schooling alternatives. But I think even in the long term, I would be very surprised if we don't see an uptick in the number of parents choosing independent homeschooling, as well as virtual schooling, or hybrid models. Um, because I think that this really is going to shift. This pandemic is really going to shift how we live and work and, and think about learning and working uh, going forward. And, and for some children and, and students, it may really work out too, right? I mean, I'm sure lots of parents are observing differences, probably positive for a lot of the kids that are at home now. I'm just thinking back. I was mentioning earlier someone I had heard on a call into a radio show had an experience with just giving up the curriculum at home in such a rigid way and having a positive experience with their child that way. Another person actually called into that same show and had mentioned that basically that overall we were talking about mental health earlier that they noticed that they had two kids i think one was like 10 one was 13 something like that that ever since the pandemic started of course during the initial shock people are worried and everybody's lives are shaken up etc but they said since they've been doing educational activities at home and have gotten into that routine and have have had a more open educational environment they've noticed that putting aside what the children are learning which is probably a good amount uh, through their own self-directed learning that th- them trying this more open educational model has also improved the mental health of their children. They see that they're, they're happier. They're, they have more mm. freedom. So that really has an impact on them. They, they were saying things like, this is great. I've never seen them so happy. They're, they're, they're going to bed on time by their own decision. They're, they're, they're willing to learn things. They're smiling more. Like it's just less stressful in them in general to be in more of an open environment. So I found that very interesting too, that Perhaps the pandemic has some sort of silver linings in, in certain ways with parents and their relationships with their kids, as well as seeing what will make their kids happy and, and what, what might work for them specifically for their education. I think that's right. I mean, I think you know, parents might be seeing that their kids are calmer, that they are more satisfied, that they're not as rushed, you know, their lives aren't as scheduled. Um, they're not being bullied in school. They're not dealing with a lot of... Um, the distractions that can come in the conventional classroom. And I think as a result of that, many parents are seeing that they could actually get through, you know, curriculum or learning materials in just a couple of hours a day uh, and then have that rest of the day to really focus on, um, 
much more of that freedom and flexibility and exploring different interests um, so that the actual learning itself doesn't need to consume so much of the day um, in terms of book work, but that that there, it really is something you're able to get through much more quickly uh, and effectively. And I think that's right. More parents are going to say, gee, you know, what else can we uh, do to facilitate our child's education outside of this conventional classroom? Well, Carrie, our time has wound down here. In every episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me say and ask you, we, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of, of our main question. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on why we need schooling alternatives? If you want to leave them with that one or two things after they listen to this all for them to take away from this conversation, what would those be? Well, I think we need more education choices, right? I mean, we have so many choices in every other part of our lives um, from, you know, the serial that we are able to purchase so the, the soft drinks that that are uh, abundant in the grocery store aisles to the kinds of car we drive and those sorts of things and we have such limited choices many of us when it comes to schooling and education that um, you know most children end up at an assigned district school uh, even if their parents don't want them there so I think we absolutely have to be focused on expanding education choice uh, providing more education options for families. And then as part of that expansion of education choice, I think it's also thinking about education as um, much broader than just schooling and encouraging parents to to see it that way as well. Carrie McDonald, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Oh, thanks again, Alex. This is great. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>